Welcome to this JFI Talk on our L'Chaim podcast. These are archived and new events and workshops from the Yedda Nashman Jewish Family Institute in Toronto. We aim to help Jewish families go from good to great by offering amazing workshops, speakers, classes, and events that bring wisdom and knowledge from Judaism, psychology, science, and culture that speaks to our issues as Jewish families and leaders today. For more information, check us out at myjfi.com. And now, let's get growing. So just while everybody's getting settled, um, I want to just, first of all, welcome you out on this uh, cold night. Um, I do hear we're supposed to get more snow. Yay! Yeah, I knew I'd be the only person saying yay to that. Um, So I want to introduce myself. My name is Ellie Bass. I'm the one that um, harasses everybody with emails and Facebook posts. Um, I'm the director of something called the Jewish Family Institute, and um, we run programs citywide, um, basically helping uh, people connect through common issues and common goals. So um, our mandate is to use uh, Jewish wisdom and psychology to bring you guys programs about relationships, parenting, uh, we do. We actually just did a Give Back Now program at one of the schools in town, so a whole class made a bunch of car care packages for the homeless. So we do a lot of um, citywide events where we just try to bring Jews together. That's why there's a big bagel on the front of my webpage. Um, so I wanted to just uh, mention a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that we actually do have coming up on Sunday is... Um, It's called the JFI Teen Mental Health Conference. It's at the Tannenbaum Chat Campus. It's actually um, in honor of my sister who passed away many years ago uh, from bipolar. And we're doing this uh, full day conference for parents and for teens. Um, There's two tracks and three keynote speakers. Um, Some incredible speakers. One of them is the head of research at CAMH. Um, One of them is uh, Mark Hennick who has a TED Talk with like over 4 million views. It's an incredible lineup. And if you work with kids or you have kids um, uh, or your kids want to come, I would definitely recommend it. It's an amazing lineup. Um, uh, So if you can go to our website, you can check it out. It's uh, myjfi.com, and you'll see recordings of past classes. You'll find all the information about the conference and any events that are coming up. Um, So I know you didn't come here to listen to me. Um, So I wanted to um, introduce Dr. Stephanie Bott. Um, she is part of our uh, community here at the Village School and um, really one of my favorite speakers to have come to the JFI, and I'm always so honored when she says yes. Um, she really just brings such a depth and breadth of wisdom and um, knowledge from her uh, background and also just from who she is. So without further ado, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for coming here. It's always amazing to me how many people will pull themselves out into the cold in the middle of the week. And I feel like it's sort of a testimony to what this shul stands for and why I make, I try to make a policy of doing this at least once a year for Ellie because this is such a place of personal growth and development, a place where we think about always trying to become the best versions of ourselves. And so if I can do my little piece of contributing to that and planting a seed in people's minds and hearts about how their lives and their worlds could be better, that is such a gift to me. So thank you so much for coming. And um, I I think the title is part of what's a 
pretty big draw in a way because it's an interesting question. Would you date you? And I think when we think about dating, people are always talking about, you know, who they'd like to meet, what they, you know, who they're attracted to, what they wish they would look like, that they would be successful, that they would be smart, they would be funny, they would be kind, they would be this, they would be that. And they usually have a long list of things that they're looking for in a spouse. And they think a little less about who am I? What am I bringing to the table? How am I showing up when I meet someone? And this doesn't even have to be about dating. It could be about friends, family. It could be about the person that you're already in a marriage or a relationship with. And it's just, if you can just think for the next little bit about taking a step back and thinking, I'm going to think about who I am and what I bring to my relationships, to my life, and most importantly, to my relationship with myself. Because the relationship we have with ourselves is at the essence of every other relationship that we have. Now, all of you have heard the, if you don't love yourself, nobody's going to be able to love you, and you're not going to have loving relationships and those kinds of things. Like, these are sort of cliche things that people say. But there's a reason things are cliches, because the, the center of them is absolutely true. And so if your relationship with yourself isn't solid, then it's not likely that you're going to be able to foster a solid relationship with somebody else. So tonight, we're going to talk about that relationship. We're going to think about that relationship by doing some very serious self-reflection. So I hope you're ready to take yourself seriously because what I find in my practice is that a big challenge for people is that they don't take themselves seriously enough. They take what's happening with their children seriously, they take what's happening in their job seriously, but they don't take themselves seriously. And when we don't take ourselves seriously, what happens? Anyone have any ideas what happens when we don't take ourselves seriously? No one else, no one else does. <laughs> right. No one else does. And then other things happen. Um, I don't know how, how uh, spiritual all of you are, but I, it's a really big part of how I think and also even how I practice therapy. And I believe that when we don't take ourselves seriously, you know, Hashem kind of comes along and taps us on the shoulder and gives us little reminders, and they're usually not friendly. They usually show up with, like, maybe a health issue, maybe someone else isn't doing so well, something that ends up being a problem that gets our attention and makes us wake up to the things that are not working in ourselves and in our lives. So when we self-reflect, when we take ourselves seriously, we are opening a huge opportunity to have a healthier, happier life. So, have it, has anyone here um, heard of Leo Buscaglia? Okay, I'm probably giving my age up a little bit because he's like from the 80s um, and maybe even before. So, um, I'm just going to read you a, a quote from him. 
Love is life. And if you miss love, you miss life. And then he says, Most of us remain strangers to ourselves, hiding who we are, and ask other strangers who are hiding who they are to love us. Think about that for a second. If, if we're hiding from ourselves and we don't know who we are, really fully, in a, in a deep and honest way, and then we're getting together with another person who's bringing all kinds of stuff from their lives, from their history, from their hurts, from their injuries, and we're getting together with them, and we're going to try and have a relationship, that's going to be tough. Because there's going to be not just your problem or their problem, there's going to be those two problems together, which doesn't make one big problem. It makes one huge problem because all of that stuff compounds. So we have to think about what it is within ourselves that we don't know well enough. What is the part that we're a stranger to? And probably there's lots of stuff. I mean, we're, we're really complicated. Like, you know, they talk about peeling back layers of an onion. We are such layered people. And what informs who we are is so complicated. It, you know, they, we even know now that our DNA from our relatives influences who we are. And the traumas that have happened to them, whoops, um, the traumas that have happened to people in our past, are we okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Um, problems that have happened to people who we may not have even met can be influencing how we deal with stress, how we deal with anxiety, how we experience our emotions. So... Then we come into this world and we have parents and they have all kinds of challenges and things going on. And then we're these people who come in with very little information other than, okay, I need food now or I need this now. And then our parents are stressed because they've got to figure out how to manage all these complicated things. And then from that, we're sort of trying to navigate little things in life and then bigger things in life and then bigger things in life. And in all of those moments, there are things that strengthen us. And in all of those moments, there are things that injure us. And that's not because we all had terrible parents. It's because that's life. And that's just part of what's going to happen because everybody comes to every relationship with so many flaws and so many challenges. And as much as you know, there's very few people who intentionally want to harm their children. And so we can, we can think about, and I'm, I'm saying this very intentionally because a lot of times when people come to therapy, they say, I, I really don't want to say anything bad about my parents. My parents are good people. They worked hard. They put me through school. They did this. And I really don't want to say anything bad about my parents. And when we reflect on what happened to us in our lives and we start thinking about who we are and taking ourselves seriously, we can't do that without also looking seriously at the people who informed who we became and at the people who we learned our first experiences of how to relate to other people. So that doesn't mean if I say, 
my mom was really anxious and guess what? I'm a really anxious person. <laughs> so that, that's, that's because a whole bunch of stuff happened to her. And I may never know what those things are, but it influenced the way she was in my life. So my mom was really overprotective. So, you know, when my friends were allowed to take a bus, I wasn't allowed to take a bus. When they were allowed to have a sleepover, I wasn't allowed to have a sleepover. So that was her way of keeping me safe, but those were things that made me feel like, well, why can't I do what the other kids are doing? Or it's not safe to have fun. Or, you know, there's all kinds of messages that we take in. My mom didn't mean me any harm by doing all those things. That was how she felt she knew best how to love me and to make sure that I was safe and that I was okay. But that ends up having an impact and it ends up affecting who I am and how I relate to people and how confident I am and how much I have trust in other people and trust in the world being a safe place and all those kinds of things. So I could take anything that any one of you could tell me and I could start showing you all the layers of that of that moment. So when I'm working in therapy, when I talk to someone and I might see that they shift or they look down or something, I, I'll say, what just happened? I just said something about something and you just kind of left the room a little bit or something just happened inside you. So what was that? And in that, in that little, little transaction, there is a ton of information about a person and about what happens to them in relationships to other people. So I want to come back to where we started with the would you date you and, and why I'm saying what I'm saying. When we're interacting with other people, we are unconsciously tracking all the time. We're tracking how they're impacting us, and we're also, hopefully, on some level, ha tracking what we're doing, how we're coming across. And so what goes on in our minds, because all of you right now are having private conversations in your mind with yourself, right? So maybe I said something and you're going, oh yeah, my mom was overprotective, or wow, my mom didn't care if I went to a sleepover party. What was wrong with her? You know, you, whatever's going on in your mind, these are the little things that are happening all the time. And so we're bringing that dialogue to every conversation that we have, except for the other person doesn't know what you're thinking. They don't know what's going on, but it's influencing how you're presenting, how you're coming across. So for some of you who may have been at, at uh, one of these talks before, you may have heard me talk about under-functioning and over-functioning. Um, so all of us err on one side of the spectrum of under-functioning or over-functioning. And it would be no surprise to know that people who under-function usually marry or end up with people who over-function because they are glue for each other. So the under-functioning means usually either that we were really pampered as children and so we never really realized that we had to show up and do things in order to get things or the overfunctioning usually means that we had to work really hard to get validation, to get attention, to get what we thought might feel like love. And um, so we all have these 
these pieces to ourselves. And in some situations, we underfunction. In some situations, we overfunction. But in relationships, there's usually one person who's one way or the other. So as I'm saying this, part of your internal dialogue is probably, oh, I'm an overfunctioner. Oh, really, I never did clean the kitchen. I never did make the bed. That person I live with does all those things. Think that's underfunctioning, right? And we often take for granted what it feels like to be the person who's on the other side of that equation. So what do you think it feels like to be an underfunctioner? If if you're in a relationship with somebody who underfunctions, what do you think is going on in their mind? They wait for you to take the lead. They wait for you to take the lead, yes. They wait for you to take the lead. And do you think they feel good about that? Not necessarily. I mean, depending on the topic, but not necessarily. Right. They don't know where to go, what to do, so how? So that's an interesting idea, because a lot of people that I meet who underfunction actually know exactly what to do, but they don't do it. How come? Somebody else is going to do it. So, and, but why do you think that they want someone else to do it for them? Maybe they want to feel looked after. They want to feel looked after. Okay, so now we're getting closer to the motivation. What were you going to say? Once you become someone, this is what I think is like if you're under functioning, say like you're very shy, you may know that you can speak up, but once you become that person that speaks up, you forget what feeling shy feels like. (laughs) Right. And the person who is outspoken, we can't possibly remember what the experience of being shy was. It transforms into something else. That's a very interesting point you're making, actually, because it's sort of related to where I'm going with this in the sense that um, if the way I define love goes back to what you said, if the way I define love means that someone takes care of me and I start taking care of myself in a relationship, I'm not going to be sure that I'm loved. That's pretty scary, right? So now if you're in a relationship with somebody who's under-functioning and you're thinking, wow, they're doing this because this is how they know I love them? That's a very different feeling you're going to have than, can you just clean up for one time, just one time? That's, it's a very different way of reacting to that person. You, it could change the whole conversation you could end up now being able to dialogue with them by saying, you know, I realize that you need to know that I really care about you. And the way you understand that is that I do all these things for you. But when I do all these things for you, I feel taken advantage of. And I don't feel cared for. I don't feel loved. Now we're having a real conversation. Yes? This is probably where you're getting it from, so I can't help it. That it's the languages of love. So, in a sense, I think I think it's actually a really nice dialogue to have. And the person who says, "Okay, what is this? Is my love language for me? This is what you can do." And so, I think at that point, then you've got more of a negotiation or understanding rather than "I don't want to do it." It's no. Is this is what you need, and this is what I need, and then both people can grow from that. Right. Right. Yes. I'm seeing a different picture, an underfunctioner and a functioner. Underfunctioner, uh, 
on one hand, can rely on the other person to do everything. Yes. But it can also backfire. Yes. When that other person who is a functioner takes over and the other person feels intimidated and taken over completely and utterly and they lose sight of who they are. Yes. That could be an absolute... So now you're talking about something that's, that's like codependence, right? Because um, that, like, you know, someone may have addictions or something and then someone's sort of taking over their well, life not, and... Well, not necessarily. One person just has a stronger character than the other. Yes. Okay, so this is, this is important. So what we're talking about is, you, you described it as love languages and you talked so about... One more thing yes. Your language of over-functioning and under-functioning doesn't work for me, so I'm just wondering, is there a better way to describe Because I think that, I don't know what it relates to, because it's more like looking after, more like, you know, almost somebody being a parent and a child, but maybe it's if it's potential or is it something, is there a way you can... Well, I think that goes to, so you have a certain language that, that works better for you, right? So that so I, I think mean, that goes to your, right. your comments about love languages, right? So you're not relating to the words that I'm using, but I think you get the concept, so right? It. Yes. So um, it's, this is the way I define it. So, um, so I think that, I think though where we're going, if we go back to the would you date you and you start thinking about who am I, now I'm giving you like dichotomous examples. Most of us exist on a continuum of these kinds of things and are more that way in certain situations and more another way in other situations. There's a certain situational component to it. But the point is for, for our purposes tonight is for you to be thinking about where you show up in relationships and how you function and what you're looking for out of your relationships and how you're getting those needs met. So I want to I ask you um, a question, but you don't answer it out loud. Just think to yourselves because um, I think it could be embarrassing in a way. I want you to think about the aspect of yourself that you find most irritating or annoying. The quality in yourself that you actually like least. <laughs> and I want you to think about how you talk to yourself about that quality. Are you kind to yourself? Do you say, wow, that's just, that's so too bad that I have that part of myself. It's not the nicest part of myself, but it's okay. I can accept it. Are you compassionate to that piece of yourself? Or are you harshly critical to that piece of yourself? Most of us are harshly critical if we decide to pay attention to it at all. So here's the thing. When we come to a relationship, that piece of yourself that you don't like, you're requiring the other person to put up with it all the time. And I, I'm bringing this up in this way to be very bold because when couples come to my office, very rarely, in fact never, do they sit down and say, this is what I do wrong in this relationship. This is what I bring to this relationship that causes challenges for my partner. 
Sometimes if something very dramatic has happened, like somebody gambled and lost all the money from the family or something like that, the person will come in a, in a, in a state of terrible shame and say, I have this problem and I blew all our money and, and you know, he or she has every reason to leave me because I've ruined our lives. And, you know, so there'll be the production of the guilt and the shame and the horror of, of, of how this terrible problem they have has destroyed their lives. But that's, that's the rare exception. Mostly people come and they are experts on the flaws of their partner. Complete experts. And then when I say, okay, so I understand, you know, you're not happy with your spouse because your spouse did all of these things and talks over you and doesn't listen to you and criticizes you and does all these terrible things. I understand. So what, what can you tell me about what you do? What can you tell me about what you bring that maybe is contributing to some of this? No, no, no. If, if he would stop doing that, everything would be fine. Absolutely everything would be fine. But two minutes ago, every person in this room thought of something about themselves that's not attractive. So if that, that thing in you is coming into your relationships, you're expecting it to be fine, and you're expecting to be understood and accepted in spite of that, piece of yourself so we also have to bring that same compassion and understanding to the flaws in our partners and it's very hard to do most people are not able to do that and that to me is a big chunk of what couples therapy is about couples therapy is about helping people have compassion towards themselves in towards the flaws that they have, as well as to be able to bring that compassion to the relationships that they have with other people. So I want you to now think about in past relationships, it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, it could be a friendship, it could be relationships with a family member. What are some of the complaints people have about you? Again, not out loud. <laughs> um, but, but just think about you know, some of the feedback that you've received about yourself. And I want you to take it a step further. How did you respond to that feedback? Because most of us are not great at taking feedback. Most of us feel immediately attacked. And what do people do when they feel attacked? Attack back. They fight back or they defend. So they explain and explain and defend. So someone says, you're talking too much. You're talking over me. You're not listening to me. And then the other person says, well, you're always talking. And if I don't talk over you, I'll never get a word in edgewise. Where is this conversation going? Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. If I say... Um, I want to share some things that are bothering me, but I'm afraid you're not going to be able to hear them because some of them are going to be painful. What are the chances that I'm going to be listened to? Really high, right? 
But if I point the finger and blame and complain, I'm not going to be heard. So when we're doing an exploration of ourselves, whenever we do a, like a personal inventory, which I hope you all do regularly and not just at Yom Kippur or something like that, um, we have to think about all kinds of things. And one of the things that's really important is the feedback we get from people. So what I want to ask you all to do the next time you hear some negative feedback is not to react, to pause. To pause and take a step back and think to yourself, is there something of value for me to hear here? Is there something that this person is saying that there would be more benefit to me to really listen to them and internalize it as a possible truth about myself? than to immediately put my hands up and go, I can't hear you, stop, don't tell me this. One of the problems is that we, most of us, have really fragile egos. And it's really hard to hear stuff about ourselves. So when we start working on ourselves, when we start engaging in a journey of self-reflection, we need to work on doing that with compassion. In the last year, I've been practicing a lot of yoga, and it's been an incredible experience. I feel like it's taken my understanding of things that were really intellectual for me and pulled it into a much deeper layer inside myself. And one of the most incredible things about yoga is that it is something that you do where you go into your own space. It's not a competitive sport. It's not about getting your leg higher than the person next to you. When I grew up, I was a ballet dancer. I did ballet almost every day of my life till I was 18. That is a very rigid, critical discipline. To this day, when I'm walking, I can hear like the, the ballet teachers saying, oh, you're not standing up, I'll put you in this. And, and, and it's, it's, it, it just control, it can control your mind. On top of that, you start scrutinizing your body. There shouldn't be flesh here. This isn't turned out. This isn't this. My extension isn't long enough. I was told I had weak ankles. So, you know, like, who cares about weak ankles? Why do you need this in life? <laughs> but in ballet, you need to have strong ankles because that's what you need for toe shoes. So that was my flaw. And so you, but these are critical voices that you carry. But in a practice like yoga, you go inside yourself, there is no critical voice. However you show up on the mat is fine. And the mat is a place where you're with yourself. And I've been reading a book called Light on Life by Iyengar, who's a, a very famous yogi. And he says the most incredible thing that's so simple he says that when you overextend a pose or you overemphasize or try and make it too great, it's totally driven by ego and you're most likely to injure yourself. When you don't push yourself in a pose to enough of an extent, that indicates that you don't have enough confidence to really be present and in that pose. And so the whole idea is balance. And you find the balance by bringing your breath. Your breath is your essence. And by bringing your breath into the pose, you become present and fully in the pose. And then you are to extend and stretch. 
we need to do this in relationships. We need to be inside ourselves, present, self-reflecting, and then extend and stretch. And we have to do that for our partners, for our friends, for our family members, and we have to push ourselves to a place where it feels a bit uncomfortable, but not where we're trying to show off, not where we're trying to show up somebody, but where we're trying to just push ourselves a little bit further than we went before, because we want to be a bit better. We want to be a bit kinder. We want to listen a bit better. We want to be more generous. We want to be more open, things like that. So I want to go back to, we were talking about what people have told you about yourself, place where you might have resistance, place where you don't want to listen. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. What are you afraid to hear about yourself? What would be something that you really didn't want to hear about yourself? Just want you to think about that for a second and be as brutally honest with yourself as you can. And now ask yourself if it's true. If there's any piece of that thing that you're afraid to hear about yourself that's true. Because if you're really honest with yourself, the thing that we fear the most is part of our truth. And it's coming out somewhere. And so when we talk about self-exploration, we have to face these things that are unpleasant about ourselves because these very things are the things that destabilize our relationships. And if we go... Back to what I started with, with that quote with Leo Buscaglia about love is life, and if you miss love, you miss life. We miss love because the way we're trying to get it is from patterns that we learned when we were young that don't work for us. And if we don't take these really powerful personal inventories of ourselves, we are going to miss love because we're not going to be able to be present in our relationships in a way that invites love into our lives. And if I think, if I could say in one thing what everybody wants who comes to my office, even if they're coming to me about a problem that they're having at work, is to feel loved and safe in the world. That's what we all want. It's not complicated in terms of, what, of us understanding what that means. One second. Being, feeling loved and safe. But it is really complicated to figure out how to achieve that. What were you going to say? So, should we hold ourselves to a higher standard compared to the, the other person? Like, you just said that there are some things about us that destabilize the relationship. But then, you also said that we should be compassionate to the other person's shortcomings. Yes. So where do we draw the line? That is one of the most challenging questions. So the best definition of mental health that I ever heard is um, about finding a balance between taking care of yourself, keeping yourself in mind, and keeping the other person in mind. And that balance is very difficult. In some situations, obviously, like if you have children, you're going to be keeping them a little bit more in mind. And that would be, in that moment, probably the healthier thing to do because that's your job as their parent. 
But in other moments, like in intimate relationships, people who too often keep the other person in mind and don't honor their own needs enough will create an imbalance in the relationship. And so the idea, so when you said holding yourself to a higher standard, what I hear is someone's <coughs> critical self jumping in and saying, oh, you were bad, you should have done this, that was bad, you should have done that. So I, I'd rather think of it as constantly evolving into a better, more, um, I can't think of the right word, like a, like a, a grander version of yourself whatever that is for you, um, and, and trying to aspire to that and take it higher all the time, but not as some kind of rigid rule or standard, as this is how I'm going to feel best about myself. If I deal with people in this way in my life, I'm going to feel better about who I am. And that is going to make me have a, a better relationship with myself and the people around me. Next question. What do you complain about the most? Think about that. What bugs you? What gets under your skin more than anything else? Some people say things like lying or cheating or um, rudeness or... Um, it's all kinds of things that people complain about the most. Road rage, crappy drivers rank up there for a lot of people. Um, now I want you to think of a time when you did that. Because you have. We all have. You ever heard yourself in a moment say something that wasn't true? And you kind of go, why did I just say that? That wasn't really true. It's not exactly what happened or something like that. So a lot of people say, I always tell the truth. There's a, there's a psychological test called the MMPI. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. There's some people in here I know have heard of it. Um, and um, on that test, there's something called a lie factor. So when people take this psychological assessment, if they answer certain questions in a certain way, it tells the person who is interpreting the test that they have not responded in an honest way. And one of those um, questions is, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's like, I always tell the truth. And then people check off, I do. No chance. Zero chance. We're all liars. Okay. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not as much as some other people that you know, but we all have moments of not being honest, not being truthful, not being honest with ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time, too. That's not honest. So we go back to would you date you, and we think about the thing you complain about the most in other people or the thing that bothers you the most. And then we think about the idea that we do it too. That can bring down the frustration and the anger that we feel at other people for doing those things. And that's why humility is so important. 
because when we think of all the things that we do that are not okay and they happen every day all the time, you know, I'll walk through a door and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't hold that door open for that person or, you know, whatever it is, like the things that we realize when we missed it, we missed that opportunity to be kind. We missed that opportunity to help somebody or we missed that opportunity to, to just be present and listen. And uh, we're not going to be perfect and that's okay. But then when the other person that you're with is showing those flaws, just remember that you do it too. Maybe not as much, maybe not as often, but we, we all have these propensities. And so when we're humble and not righteous, which is, that's another thing that shows up a lot in couples sessions, righteousness. I would never do that. I would never say that. I would never do that. And uh, that's, just not, that's just not a place to solve a problem. So... Um, Oh, there's a question? Ellie. Hi. Um, You talk about, like, how we talk to ourselves in our head. Yes. And that, like, there's, like, the critical mind that kind of, like, puts you through for whatever it is you do or say or think. Um, But then, you know, there's also that sort of compassionate, like, you know, accepting. Yes. But is there, like, what's the ideal? Because you don't want to be too compassionate that you just allow it to continue to happen. Right. You don't want to be so critical that you just shut things down. I'm actually glad that you brought up... What would that sound like in my head if it was balanced? What would that sound like? Okay, so first of all, I want to get to the thing that you just said about the compassionate part because that's a really important thing. And I I actually thought that in my mind that that was something I wanted to bring up earlier today, which is compassionate doesn't necessarily mean um, giving myself permission to not show up in my best possible way and going, no problem, that's okay, it's all good, everything's fine. Actually, if you've done something that's harmful to another person, that's never fine. That's never okay. So I feel like within each person, there is a natural moral compass And that some of us err on the side of being too stringent with it, and some of us err on the side of being too generous with it. And so I think that goes to that idea of, like, to thine own self be true, and to really reflecting on, in a truthful way, where does that land on me, and how do I really feel about what I just did or said? Um, And then thinking about okay, I did it, I said it, so how do I want to move forward with that now? How am I either going to repair that with this other person or make peace with myself about it and figure out how that's something I'm going to try not to do next time? I could give you like a simple example. On this year, as I've tried many years on Yom Kippur, I decided I wasn't going to curse, I wasn't going to swear anymore. And then, you know, uh, just yesterday, I slammed my finger in the door, and guess what came out of my mouth? Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I can forgive that because I actually feel like that was quite an impulsive move and that it was unlikely that I was going to be able to monitor my speech in that moment. Like I always use this thing like who's somebody that you'd really want to impress and imagine if they were standing in front of you and would you still do that? So yes, when I slammed the door on my finger, regardless of who was there, that was coming out of my mouth. So, um, so does that sort of... Um, but that idea of a moral compass, the thing that I find about it for most people is that I think we're not honest enough about it. I think we're not truthful with ourselves enough about where we are in that place in, inside ourselves, where we are registering how, how we, um, we came across. You know, today somebody that I saw... Um, when he gets stressed at work, he gets hypercritical of himself. And he has this insane job where he could be running like 20 projects at one time. And every once in a while, it just gets to that little piece too much. And as soon as it gets to that little piece too much, he freezes and he's not able to think anymore. And then when he's there, when he's not thinking anymore, instead of saying, you know, it's really not okay that they haven't got me any support staff for this project, he says, I should be able to do this. And so that's actually something that goes on a lot in therapy, is working with people to help them find where the compassion should show up and where some kind of, now I'm going back to your word, the higher standard, the, the place of having to evolve more and hold ourselves to a different idea of what we could be needs to enter in more. Um, so on that point, though, which is also super important for this talk, is however I am with myself is also going to be projected onto the people around me. So if I'm a really harsh critic of myself, chances are I'm going to have less patience and tolerance for other people's mistakes and errors. And that, that's something that is where our lack of self-knowledge starts interfering with how we're treating other people. So, um, it's funny, I just looked down and my next question was, how's your patience? <laughs> how patient are you? How tolerant are you? Is it something you want to improve? Um, since most of you didn't know Leo Buscaglia, he was a pretty crazy guy. They used to call him the love doctor. <clears throat> and if he got caught in an elevator, like say the elevator got stuck on a floor or something, he'd turn around to the people he's packed in this elevator with and he'd say, isn't this amazing? We're going to have like an hour to get to know each other. <laughs> and so he, he just would roll with it, you know, and he would, he would turn every moment into an opportunity to connect with somebody. And, uh, you know, he would make jokes and certain things that I'd read by him where he would, you know, talk about how people would be like irritated by him if he sat beside them on an airplane because he'd want to know everything about them. <laughs> so... Um, the way people feel most loved is when they feel most known. 
But it's really difficult to actually reveal yourself to a person if you don't know yourself that well. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And if you're not willing to really show yourself as a flawed person who has challenges. And I think that if you think about what love is looking like in your life, if you're in a relationship or with your friends and what hurts you and what troubles you, you need to take another step back and think, what am I doing that's contributing to creating this dynamic in my life? What is it about me that influences this? So one thing I've, I've known, and, and it's, you know, it's improved over the years, but with myself, boundaries were not my strength. I was, I was often getting overwhelmed and still occasionally because people would be, I'd see like seven, eight patients in a day and I'd come home and my phone would be ringing and people would be having troubles that they were wanting me to help them with. <laughs> and uh, and le- if I answered the phone, it was very difficult for me to say, no, this is not a good time. And I would always think that whatever was troubling them trumped. That's a bad word, right? (laughs) Do I have to add that to my list? I don't know. Um, um, So um, um, it's funny, every time, because I use that word a lot, and now it takes on this meaning, and everyone has all these different associations with it. But uh, I, I just think that we have to be able to be comfortable with ourselves. We have to be able to tolerate ourselves. We have to be able to have patience with ourselves. And we have to be able to be honest about what the flaws are that we need to tolerate and be patient with. And then we need to be able to show that to the people around us. So if you want to change what is around you, you have to change what is within you. If you want love to show up differently in your life, then you have to show up differently for love. We have to have a passion to understand other people. I love my job because I can't think of what could be more interesting than human behavior. Like, we're all fascinated by it. It's amazing. And what this job teaches you is how to be an amazing listener and how to be super curious. Super curious about what makes people tick about why they do what they do, about how they feel when they do it, about how aware they are, about how other people are receiving what they do. And I feel like it's a gift to be able to be in this profession because I learn so much about my own relationships and my own life and my friends and my family and how and what's going on. And and I, I feel like my sensitivity expands all the time. But then... I still have to show my boundaries. I still have to be able to say no sometimes. And that is something where I think some people are either too rigid or too loose. So it goes back to the, and again, I'm giving dichotomies, but it's the underfunctioning, overfunctioning. It also comes up with boundaries. And usually people that overfunction have weak boundaries because they don't know where to say no. They don't know where to say this is where I end this is where I have to stop today and 
So you need to know also, are your boundaries rigid? Are your boundaries weak? And if your boundaries are weak and you're taking on too much of the people's troubles around you, you're going to start to resent them and you're going to start to feel angry. You're also probably burying your needs. So these are the last couple of questions I'm going to ask you about which have to do with needs. Do you actually know what your needs are? I know it sounds like a kind of basic question, like, yes, we need to eat, um, we need to sleep, but actually most of us don't do that very well. We have more people have sleep disorders than anything else. Um, but what about your, your emotional needs? Do you, do you know what they are? Do you know what you need from other people? Do you know what you want? So if we step away from, yes, I'd like to be with a person who's like funny and smart and, you know, successful and, you know, the, the concrete things, kind, generous, loving, attentive, attuned. So I'm going to hang on a, I'm going to hang out on attunement for a second. I went to see an amazing speaker in Toronto a few weeks back named Jessica Benjamin. She's one of the most brilliant psychoanalysts um, around right now. And she talks, she wrote a very famous book many years ago called The Bonds of Love. And um, her current book is Do, oh, now I'm losing it. Do, do and be done to, do or something about do and be done to, but I can't remember it exactly. <laughs> anyway, she talked about attunement, that most of her, presentation was about attunement and misattunement. Most injuries happen to other people because we're misattuned. We're not really listening and we're not really paying attention. And the other thing is most of us have been misattuned too. We haven't been heard. We haven't been understood. So today I gave the example to someone in my office about the little kid that goes up to their parent with a painting and says, look, look, mommy, look at this beautiful painting I made. And then the mother goes, oh, my gosh, I used to make pictures like that when I was a kid. Where's that child? What, what, what happens to that child? This is an innocent moment. And, and that mother could be super attuned a hundred other ways a hundred other times. But that moment, it didn't work out. And that child maybe just felt a little bit of shame for sticking that painting out there, and then felt like, oh, this painting's not that special? Yes? Great, uh, please. I'm sorry, I forgot my question. Oh, no problem. <laughs> um, just let me know if it comes back. Sure. Um, so the attunement in relationships is key. And part of the communication that we have with the people that we have relationships with has to be letting them know when they have attuned to us or misattuned. So, um, like, thank you for listening. And listening doesn't necessarily mean we have to say anything. And if we don't know what to say, when someone's telling us something challenging, it's okay to say, I can hear that, and I see that you're suffering with that. I don't think I have any great words of wisdom, but I want you to know that I'm here, and if you need to talk some more, I'm going to listen. Yes. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. Don't you think getting to know the other person is a lifelong process, especially when it's a man and a woman, 
and a man doesn't know what a woman thinks and how a woman thinks and vice versa. So, like, I know it's, it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Uh, I think so. I think so. You're 100% right. It is a, absolutely a lifelong process. And I think that the idea of marriage and true intimacy is a, a lifelong process of getting to know the other person more and more and more. It's having the courage to peel back the layers of the onion together and being able to show the other person in the most vulnerable, truthful way who we are and feel safe and accepted and loved, even though we have all kinds of things that we do in relation to that person that is challenging. And it doesn't mean that any of us become doormats. It means that also we're able to reflect back. It is loving to reflect back. When you do that, that is hurtful to me. When you do that, I don't feel understood. When you do that, I, I don't feel cared for. And that we have to find a language to communicate what doesn't work for us that isn't harming, that's opening doors, that's creating connections instead of closing them. I added this quote in because I liked it, and it, it, it's just a simple thing. But they say, um, I didn't write down who said it actually, apologizing doesn't always mean you're wrong and the other person is right. It means you value your relationship more than your ego. And I, I often actually think apologies can be kind of lame. I, I don't think that, and, and I also really don't like when people force apologies because I, I don't think that any repair happens. The best apology is really changed behavior. The best apology is when someone actually fixes the thing that caused the harm and says, I take this seriously, I take this so seriously that here's what I'm going to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again. That's the best apology. And it, in order to achieve that, we have to be able to step back from our egos and not need to be right. We need to hold the care of the other person the honoring of the other person above our need to be right. Um, so if you think about being true to yourself and you think about deeply knowing yourself and you think about honoring yourself and you think about taking really good care of yourself, mind, body, soul, And then you think about feeling really solid in your relationship with yourself, feeling good enough about who you are. You can then enter into another relationship in a way that will bring intimacy and love into your life. And it's not, it sounds simple in words, but it's a really, really complicated recipe. But it's doable, and I think it's worth fighting for, and I think it's worth striving for. And I think that's it. <laughs> yes. Can you repeat that last minute bit? I want to write it down. I don't know if I could say it again. But, um, the recipe. Yeah. Honoring yourself, respecting yourself, taking care of yourself, mind, body, soul. 
Um, maybe somebody else can remember some of the things I said. Um, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing. Being empathetic and kind to yourself. Yes. I, I was just going to add, you know, I think when you talk about Yes, that's beautiful. A question? Yes. If you put into place everything that you said, um, is that necessarily a recipe always for success? So in other words, my question is, barring you know, the, the big things that you should definitely run away in a relationship like abuse, alcoholism, right. and addictions, and so forth, where you don't have any of those things in place. You have two decent people, and both of them trying very hard using the recipe that you just said, and still can't make it work because there's some essential incompatibilities. Uh -huh. um, where, where does that come into place where you understand that this person just isn't the right person as much as you even use all of your... Um, so this isn't, this isn't a recipe necessarily meaning that whatever current relationship you're in is going to become this you know, beautiful, passionate, loving, intimate relationship. <coughs> but when you follow a certain practice, you know, I, I'm thinking of yoga now because Yvette was just talking about it and because, um, because I think about it a lot now, but I also think about it in terms of prayer also. When we engage in a practice that's focused on evolving ourselves as human beings, the stuff that isn't working in our lives often becomes more salient. It becomes more obvious. And as we become better acquainted with ourselves and stronger within ourselves and more solid, that stuff often has to leave our lives because it's not a fit with who we're evolving into. But there becomes an opportunity to bring something new in. Mm -hmm. And to have some, that something new is going to be more likely to mirror this this better version of yourself, which should hopefully bring more intimacy. And I think about it this way. I'm, and I'm going to again reference yoga. But when I if I could be in a really crummy mood and I can walk into a yoga class and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this cold weather, I can't take it. It's going to snow again. And I'm just like tired of everything and whatever. I go into the class. I leave and I'm like wow, that's so pretty the way the light sparkles on the snow and like, you know, and it kind of shifts. And so sometimes we bring that into our relationship and our relationship that looked like it went sour starts to look light. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it also shines a light on something that just is too blemished and is not resolvable. Yeah. And that's okay. Right. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I have a specific question. Yes. Um, if you move forward what you said about dating yourself. Yes. Canada is a country for immigrants. So I am what we call family Canadian. Yes. Immigrant. Um, when you talk about the dating thing, how do you consider the cultural gap? Because you can know, I mean, you can be in a mode where you know yourself, you work, and even though it's an everlasting process, and I got that. But how... You constitute the cultural gap, one, yes. in the dating, and two, the dating is 
here my vision super processed Yes. Based on my country, yes. my country, maybe you call it with the accent, I'm from France. Yes. We are not into a process. Here... It's more romantic in France, right? It is supposed to be. Yes. <laughs> but here, I feel it's difficult process. Yes. And you feel that through the questioning, for instance. I feel like when I'm dating, I feel like I'm getting to a... Like an interview? Oh, yeah. And right. I don't want to get the job, so... <laughs> you know what, if someone's interviewing like that, that's not a job you want. <laughs> but that, that's, that's yes. why it's interesting, because you can work on yourself, Yes. but that getting used to the cultural gap, I mentioned something today to someone, and I said, you know, in, in France, you go to a store, there's a lovely woman, you say, what about having a drink, let me give you my phone number. Here? <laughs> Oof, 911, I don't know. <laughs> 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 so, first, you can do that every day. I mean, why not? So, my question for you then is like, okay, you've got these things about you, and that's definitely the best thing to, to go for. I agree. But then, how you work on the other side, because that's a lot of work, and you don't necessarily want to do it. What I'm saying is, the gap is, is not a gap, it's a double bridge. It's huge. The cultural gap yes. adds another yes. dimension to the yes. challenge that has to be overcome to find a place to connect with someone in a way that feels like it has an opportunity to evolve into something. Did, were you wanting to say something in relation to what you said? I, I actually did. I wanted to comment on that. Because yes. I, I, I'm an immigrant too. I've been here a lot longer. And I encountered the same thing. I lived in Israel. And... My pet peeve was men notice women in Israel. You can look like the back of a bus and they will still say to you, can I start with you? They, you know, and it makes, you know, it's slimy, but it makes you feel like a million bucks. <laughs> People are afraid to talk to each other until you'll meet someone who will answer you and will give you their number because they'll see you maybe as a real person and maybe not as a threat or someone who is out to get them. So I think it's different people. It's who you encounter. Not everybody's going to go, well, I can't talk to you because I'm afraid of you or you seem slimy. I, f I feel like, you know, the thing about different cultures is that we t have a different read on things, right? So in, in some cultures, people are completely covered and no one sees anybody and, and you don't dare speak to someone of the opposite sex and it's really rigid. And in other cultures, it's much looser and much, much more open. And, and now here, I think what's happening is, um, to me, you know, when I hear from single people who are coming into my office... I feel like some of the magic is gone, to be honest, which is feeling kind of sad to me. Um, but when I hear someone speak like the way you're speaking, I feel like I see a chance for something different, and I, I wouldn't foreclose on that and assume that because you come from a different place that there isn't someone who's going to be beautifully receptive to that energy that you're bringing because it does not feel rude or intrusive to me the way you described it. It's definitely a question of... I agree with the question of match, 
But it's pretty funny. Because yes. what is in my previous country something normal here could be super funny. Yes. Yes. But the thing is that's the leverage. Finding <coughs> finding that, that place that it's okay. I think you can do it. I have faith yeah, in you. It's it's <laughs> Just start off as sorry I'm French. But apparently with the accents, I don't know why, but people need, you're from France. I say, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't need to say that, just by few words. Yes. So my question to you has to do with timing. Yes. Because that has upset me a lot. I've happened to meet beautiful people in my life. Yes. But at these incredibly weird times, like I met this beautiful guy and he was just divorcing. So. How do you deal with that? How could I love him when he had to move to my place because he was kicked out from us? I meet this beautiful Croatian guy. We were we connected in every single level, but I was supposedly leaving the country in a month after the month after I was I met him, and I never told him that I'm leaving, and because I never told him, he felt that there's really no connection. So that got me thinking. It's like. Because I can't control when I meet the people that I have these amazing connections with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it happens at these times. So now I have this troublesome question in my head. Because like, do I really have to wait until everything is perfect? That I no. everything is set? No. I, I think that, um, I mean, to me, I have incredible faith. So when timing isn't right, then I think the relationship isn't right. So, because I think that that's not, that's not what's intended. So that, that comes to me from more of a spiritual place and not some kind of technical idea about how relationships evolve. But I think you may run into one of these beautiful people again at a place when the time is right. And then it may be a better moment. Or you may meet someone new and there'll be different timing. But I, I think um, timing has to do with how the universe is unfolding. And I think we have to have faith that that's happening in the way it's supposed to. Anyone else? Yes. So, so with this knowledge, obviously someone would have a greater awareness of you know, the emotional needs of themselves and the other person. But yes. what about the situations where the other person is not at the same level of knowledge. So obviously you're thinking about the other person and being considerate and compassionate of, about yourself and the other person, but the other person isn't really there because of lack of experience or whatever. So it can be done so in that situation. To me that's part of where the best thing you can bring to a relationship is curiosity. And so if someone's in a different place from you, but they have the capacity and the interest to learn, then by asking questions and being interested in how they're coming across or how they're relating to you, you can help them catch up. Yes? I have a question. Thank you for, this has been an incredible talk tonight. Oh, thank good, you. I'm glad, thank you. Or, and you for seeing this. Um, so my question is, um, Early, at the beginning of the talk tonight, you talked about, you mentioned about taking yourself seriously. Yes. And then when you ask the self-reflection question. So I'm kind of at a point in my life where that's kind of, that's the messaging that I'm receiving. I'm not taking myself seriously yes. in certain areas. So I hear it, but I'm wondering, like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Because I do consider myself to be quite a serious person, and I have a serious 
career, and I do, you know, I have serious relationships in my life with family, all of that. But on a personal front, and in kind of the context of what I date myself, like, what does that mean, kind of on a deeper level, like, to take yourself seriously? You know, sometimes taking yourself seriously actually doesn't have to, you don't have to assess it necessarily on a deeper level. Like, and I, I'm, not, I'm not assuming that this is what you're doing at all, but one of the things that I see in a lot of people when they're dating, particularly women, is that they, um, they're too eager and they're too available. And, um, oh, I was going to go to this lecture, but then this guy called, and then I hooked up with him, and then, you know, like that kind of thing. So I would say, well, why are you taking your life seriously? You were committed to a lecture. Why did he change your agenda? Um, you know, and why didn't you suggest to him another night? You know, something like that. And so taking yourself seriously is, is saying who I am matters, what I do matters, how I come across matters, how I'm treated matters. And so when we're willing to accept less than we deserve, we're not taking ourselves seriously. When we're willing to tolerate bad behavior, we're not taking ourselves seriously. And when we're mistreating ourselves and not honoring our own needs and our self-care, we're not taking ourselves seriously. So a really easy way to start with taking yourself seriously is to engage in self-care. Are you happy with how you're eating? Are you happy with how you're sleeping? Are you happy with the amount of exercise you're doing? Are you happy with the alone time you give yourself, with the meditation time, the whatever it is that you do for self-care? That's an easy way to start with, am I taking myself seriously? Yes? Um, it's kind of like a broad question, um, but is there such thing as the one? And if there isn't, how do you know if, how do you know if, if the person you're with has enough compatible qualities to get married? Like, how would you know that? So, one of the biggest things, okay, first of all, I'm going to tell you, I am a total romantic, and I absolutely believe there are ones, <laughs> okay? But how do you know when they are one of the ones? Um, well, I think the basic, the butterflies, the I can't wait to see this person again, I'm so excited, you know, that kind of, that passion, that draw, that excitement, I think those are, those are the, the things that tell us that this could be one of the ones. <laughs> how can you confuse, or how can you not confuse that with infatuation? Um, when it lasts longer than three months you're moving into it's going past infatuation. But you don't have butterflies 10 years into a marriage. Sometimes so you do. You really sometimes, sometimes, you know, I mean, usually there has to be some space, okay. you know, like maybe the person went away and then they came home or, you know, I, I'll hear people say, you know, I've been married to this person for 30 years and I, I saw him walking on the beach when we were on vacation and I was like, is that really my husband? <laughs> He's so handsome, you know? So I, it's, it's absolutely possible, and I know it is for sure. And I, so I think, I think no one should give up on love. And I think if you are in a relationship where some of that fizzle has gone out of it, that doesn't also mean you can't rekindle it. By doing some of these things that I'm talking about, taking yourself seriously, listening better, getting more attuned to one another, sharing more, spending more intimate time together, that can build that back in. 
And um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up faith on that. You asked me another piece to this question that I didn't answer, I think. Um, um, how do you know if they're the ones? How do you know? And if they're not, um, how do you know if they have enough Oh, the compatibility. The yeah. compatibility. Okay, actually, I'm glad you bring that up because that was something else I had thought about that I wanted to bring up and I didn't bring it up. Compatibility. So, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I love skiing, I need to be with someone who skis, or I love golf, I need to be with someone who golfs, or, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, that's really great if you share an activity together, and that can be fun, and that can bring a certain excitement into the relationship, but it's not necessary. What's necessary is that the two of you relate and connect in a way that feels safe and loving and deep. And that um, you know how you learn how to solve problems together. And if you can solve problems together, then your relationship's going to have long legs. And that means not going underground, not pretending things are okay, and that's how you solved a problem. But I mean really solving a problem, really repairing injuries when they happen, and strengthening that bond. Okay. I'm actually going to say thank you to Stephanie. If you want to, you'll be around for maybe a couple of sure. minutes at the end if people want to ask her questions also. And um, uh, this, like I said, this talk will be on our website. It will be on Facebook. So all I want to say is thank you so much for coming. Thank Again, you. thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. And we'll see you next time.